Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I had figured it out. Wow. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. Quick reminder events coming up in Portland, Maine, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and New York City. Go to storycollider.org for more info. This week's story is from Brian Wecht. It was recorded in May 2015 at Littlefield in Brooklyn. All right. Uh, about 20 months ago, my wife, Rachel, found out that she was pregnant. Wait for applause. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was the worst applause, um, but I appreciate it. Um, and we were, we, were, we were super excited. Uh, we'd been wanting a baby for a while, and we were very excited to have one. And I was particularly excited because having a baby meant that I would have something I could experiment on. <laughs> and... Uh, when we were, you know, we were, of course, first-time parents, very nervous about everything, and we went out and we bought a bunch of books. So Rachel uh, went out and got, like, What to Expect When You're Expecting and The Wonder Weeks and all these books about, you know, the mechanics of pregnancy and birth and raising an infant and all this stuff. And I went out and I bought a bunch of developmental psychology books. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not a, as, as Ben said, I'm, I'm, I'm a theoretical physicist. I'm not a psychologist. All this stuff was totally new to me, never taken a psychology class uh, in my life. And uh, there was one book in particular I really, really loved. It's from about 15, 20 years ago. It's called The Scientist in the Crib by Alison Gopnik and two other people whose names, embarrassingly, I can't remember. Um, but uh, th the idea behind this book was very, very exciting to me. So here, here's the basic thesis of this, of this book. It's that babies are not stupid little lumps of bullshit. Uh, who are just kind of flailing around and making random-ass noises. Um, actually, babies are constantly trying to figure out the way the world works. And the idea, the main idea behind this book, which I guess is, of course, building in some general trend in developmental psychology from 20 or more years ago, is that babies are like little scientists. They're constantly doing experiments trying to figure out how the world works. And so I was like, oh my god. You know, I'm a scientist, and I'm going to have a scientist, and I'm going to be doing science on the little scientist, so I was going to have this little fractal um, <laughs> at home. And there was, I, I learned so much from, from this book in particular. 
there are three ideas that, that uh, I particularly liked, and I wanted to, to tell you guys about those uh, now. One was, it's something, so if you look at a lot of like early you know, uh, toys and, and, and stuff like that for, for very young babies, you see a lot of things that are black and white, like black and white stripes and black and white you know, circles and things like that. And the thing I learned from this book is one reason that infants, you know, just babies that are a few months old are fascinated by black and white, the, the thinking goes that they're basically trying to figure out where one object or one thing stops and the next thing starts. So when you have a little baby that's looking at like a bunch of black and white stripes, really they're, they're doing nothing less than basically parsing the world into discrete entities. They're trying to figure out how things are, are different. And this was totally borne out with, with our baby who would just stare at this white wall we had with black pictures all over it. Uh, so they're, they're constantly you know, staring at these things. She would stare at them for what would be an adult time hour in baby time, it's like 30 seconds. Um, and you're just fascinated by them. They're trying to figure out how things, how things work. Uh, another thing I learned was that, and apparently this claim is actually somewhat controversial, apparently very, even very young babies, a few hours old, there's some experiment that says that they can mimic human facial expressions. So uh, they did an experiment where they take a, a baby, in some cases I think one was four hours old up to you know, much, much older, and they would do something like they'd look at the baby and they'd open their mouth or stick out their tongue, and occasionally the baby would mimic. And the claim was that it did it, the, the babies would do this often enough that it wasn't just random, the baby was doing something with its stupid little face. Um, <laughs> that they were actually trying to, to mimic a human facial expression, which is really, when you think about a baby that's four hours old, this is insane, right? Because this baby has never seen a human face before and probably isn't even aware that it has a face, right? This baby has been in, in the womb for nine months and has no really uh, well-understood way, unless it's some kind of hardwiring, to, to mimic the expression. And this sounds crazy, and some people I found out uh, after reading this that this claim is, is, is not widely accepted, but apparently there's some evidence that this is the case. And another thing that really fascinated me was that, uh, I, I, uh, something about how babies acquire language. And that's apparently when babies are very, very young, they can differentiate between all kinds of language sounds, all kinds of phonemes. And it's only after they get to around six months or so that they're able to, they basically lose some of that ability to differentiate between different sounds as they get accustomed to their native language. So for example, uh, a baby raised in a Japanese speaking household before roughly six months old can differentiate between L and R sounds, but after like six months or so loses that ability. So I, this book was just chock full of these, these, uh, these amazing, uh, amazing tidbits. And I was like, I was reading this and I had this vision of me, you know, sitting at home in a, in, a, in a lab coat, they never let me wear a lab coat at work because I'm a theorist and it would be super douchey uh, <laughs> if I did it. So I had this idea of me at home with a, like a clipboard. They let me use a clipboard, but I don't. Um, and you know, with, with the baby in front of me and I'm, like, I'm holding up black and white cards and I'm like, what do you see now? And waiting for a response or putting like a little row of stuffed animals, you know, like a bear, a duck and a dog. And I'm like, okay, now point to the bear. I check something off on the clipboard. And I had this whole kind of vision of all these experiments I could do, uh, I could do with the baby. And part of me, being an arrogant theoretical physicist, I was like, look, how hard can it be to write a child psychology paper, <laughs> right? I mean, I could, I could write, I could get enough data to do, to do this, to write this paper. And then I was like, no, you know, come on. I'd have a sample size of one. And not even a psychology journal would accept something with that. What, what, what? So I, I realized that that was totally untenable. 
But then I also realized, I was like, wait a minute. As parents, we'll meet other parents, and those parents will have babies. So I could assemble this group of babies to increase the sample size, right? Then I could actually get some real data. But uh, then I also realized that, you know, grants are, uh, are pretty competitive to get, and <laughs> I don't work for free. So I realized that was also untenable as well. Um, and I, I spent months reading these books, and uh, nine months, actually, specifically. <laughs> and after nine months, on May 20th, 2014, at about five o'clock in the afternoon, our daughter, Audrey, was born. And thank you. I guess, I guess that was the better place to applaud than the one where she got pregnant, so that, that makes more sense. Thank you. And I actually had been prepared for the moment of birth by talking to my other dad friends who are uh, scientists or scientifically minded people. And almost to a man, they said the, the same thing, which was when the baby comes out, you're going to look at it and you will feel nothing. You're going to look at this baby and you're not going to be, you know, it's not the, the myth of the baby, you know, floats out of the uterus and is surrounded with unicorns and rainbows and you hold it and you go twirl around and you say, oh, my baby. No, you're going to look at it and you'll see a weird little alien that hates you most of the time for its young life, which is totally true. Sometimes Rachel would be holding Audrey, who was perfectly happy. I'd pick her up. She'd scream her face off back to Rachel. Essentially, all, all my dad friends were like, this baby will not like you, and you will not like it. And so you guys will have this kind of detente for a while until roughly six or seven months until it becomes something like a person, and then you know, gradually you'll get to love it or whatever. <laughs> and this was not my experience at all. And I would be lying if I said I looked at Audrey and, uh, and immediately you know, fell in love, but there was this kind of feeling I had of a shared experience because the... For, for us, Audrey's, uh, Audrey's birth was not, it wasn't particularly crazy, but Rachel did need to have a, a fairly routine but unexpected C-section. And so I was, you know, the first person that got to, got to hold the baby uh, because she was, Rachel was off doing whatever um, on the side. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, there, there was this idea of, of me and the baby, me and Audrey, having gone through the shared experience. I mean, she, again, did more than I did. She was born, and I basically just distracted her mother. But uh, there was this idea that we had gone through, uh, gone through the same thing. And uh, we brought her home. And after spending not even that much time with her, a few days, I, I, real, I, I realized that I, I could not experiment on this baby. It, it felt like a betrayal of everything I... I had believed in, uh, and it wasn't really all the emotional whatevers. Uh, it, it was really that I couldn't figure out how to do it. <laughs> because look, I, I'm a theoretical physicist, right? I'm a string theorist, and in in string theory and theoretical physics, when you solve a problem, when you, you go, you, you're, you're trying to figure something out, you solve some equation, you figure it out, you're done, you leave work, you come back to the office the next day, and the problem's still solved. Like, the, the equation doesn't get unsolved overnight. But babies, the fundamental constants of a baby, the C, the H-bar, the Planck's constant, whatever, are constant. They don't even exist. And when they do exist, they're constantly changing. So you solve a problem one day, the baby's freaking out, and, you know, she's crying, whatever, and you're like, I know, you show her a squeaky octopus, squeak, 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 awesome, right? Loves it, stops crying. Next day, same thing. You're like, I've got this. Baby's crying. Squeaky octopus. 
drives her into a rage. And you're like, what the fuck? You were solved. You were so I did all the math. You were solved yesterday. And even though string theory has this very, it has this veneer of the, you know, this is very hard mathematical thing, it can hold a candle to the human brain and to the brain of a, of a, of a developing human, a little, a little baby. And I realized that as a, as a theorist, I was totally incapable of doing any actual experiments on this baby. Also, I loved her. <laughs> and so eventually, there was actually, there was one experiment that I figured out how to do really well and rigorously, which was to figure out how to, how to make the baby laugh, how to make Audrey laugh. So I, after rigorous testing, I came up with the following three things. So one is I take a small plastic cup and I put it on my head. And I go, good day. <laughs> she cracks the fuck up. It's awesome. That, that's method one. Um, this is all peer-reviewed, replicable. It's in my vanity journal that I published myself. Um, me method two is the following. So you put her down on the ground, and you leave through a door, and you close the door behind you, and you wave bye-bye. You have to say bye-bye. That's important. And then you throw the door open, and you run towards her, and you tickle her under the chin. And she is on the ground exploding with laughter. It's the best. And the final way... Uh, this, and this really works every, every single time, is you pick her up like this under the armpits. This is called space work, people. Uh, you pick her up like this, and then you bounce her across the room towards her mother and throw her at Rachel, who catches her and then kisses her. And I'm the king of fucking comedy <laughs> when you do that. So I realized I wasn't getting much science done at home on this baby. So it was time to enlist the professionals. And uh, not too far from where we live in London is University College London, which has an amazing infant speech uh, acquisition and learning lab. So at 10 months old, we signed Audrey up for science. And uh, they approved her. I don't know what their vetting process was. It's like, is this baby cute? Yes. Um, and I brought her into this lovely little language lab at, uh, at, at UCL. And they put a little electrode hat on her head, and they put two little electrodes behind her ears and one electrode on her cheek, which I think was mainly just to bother her, because she <laughs> super hated it. Um, and then they, the, the point of the experiment was to see, uh, it's this kind of thing I was talking about before, to see if she could distinguish between different phonemes. And so she sat on my lap and watched Teletubbies with the sound off, which is surprisingly worse than Teletubbies with the sound on. <laughs> And, uh, and they played a bunch of sounds. They had some pre-recorded sound files, which were like, So I sat through that for 20 minutes. That's love. That is love. Uh, and Audrey, actually, uh, there were a few little fussy moments, but generally uh, acquitted herself rather admirably and got through this whole speech lab. And uh, at the end, because it's England, I got a certificate. which I will read to you. So they took all these kind of depressing pictures of her with electrodes all over her head. And I got the following certificate. Or she, I got the following certificate. <laughs> Look, she couldn't have done it without me. The Infant and Child Language Research Center proudly presents Audrey Wecht, 
with the honorable title of Junior Scientist in recognition of outstanding participation in scientific research, 24th March, 2015. And, you know, it's, yeah, thank you. I'll tell her you did that. And it's, it, it's weird that I feel proud of this, because what, what, did, what did she do? What did I do? I basically forced her to get this hat, you know, kind of forcibly put on her head that she didn't want on, and then made her sit still for 20 minutes listening to horrible sounds. But... I am proud that even at just 10 months old, she actually contributed something to, to science. And so I think from, from now on, instead of being, you know, scientist dad, I'm gonna leave the baby science to the professionals and just be your dad. Thank you. That was Brian Wecht. Brian is a theoretical high-energy physicist and is the co-founder of The Story Collider. Additionally, he is half of the musical sketch duo Ninja Sex Party, in which he wears a ninja costume, remains silent, and plays the piano. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Littlefield for hosting the show and to my parents for also not experimenting on me. I, I think. Thanks for listening.